Hello, hello, my Let's Keep It Real people. Let me just start out by saying thank you so much. I spread the word. In just a few days, boy, oh boy, did my peeps speak up. Yep, that's right. When I said I was going out in person for the first time since pre-COVID to do speaking engagements, you found me the best ones. I cannot wait. I am so excited. And my first one is today. That's right. My first in-person speaking engagement. And then I have a slew of them. Thank you so much. I love it. I didn't do that much virtual because I just feel my gift is in person. And I got so many of them all over the place. So keep them coming, baby. I am truly, truly grateful. And I'll let you know how it goes. Also, thank you for my corporate clients and my individual clients. I just love them. I love each and every one of them. And I do love my guest. I am so blessed to have the best freaking guest. My next guest, Roger. Ah. He is a breath of fresh air. Not only does he have so much knowledge, no matter where you are in business, whether you're a manager, you work for yourself, an employee, own your own business, he's has so many tips for success. And he's funny and he's entertaining. Oh, I just love him to death. He takes the most complicated ideas and breaks them down for everybody to understand and apply to their everyday life. So have fun. Enjoy. Toodles. This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Well, my Let's Keep It Real people, are you in for a treat? Not only do I love this guy, but you're going to get to see him. Roger Dooley's in the house. But before he says anything, hey, Roger, I'm just going to tell him a little bit about your journey. Because, I mean, I met him at Heroic Public Speaking, and we're both in the grad course. And I knew I liked the guy, but then I was researching him. This is just a fraction of what he's accomplished in his lifetime. Roger is an author and an international keynote speaker. His books, these two are great, include Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Awesome. And Brain Fluence. Brain Fluence. 100 ways to persuade and convince consumers with neuromarketing. We've got to talk about that. He is the founder of Duly Direct, a consultancy, and I did not know this. Really? I mean, co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website. That's a whole nother podcast. The business has a, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have acquisitions here, digital marketing. I mean, come on, Duly, what else have you done? I mean, this is crazy. Hobson's a, a unit of UK-based DMGT, where Dooley served as VP Digital Marketing after the acquisition. Whew. He spent years in direct marketing as the co-founder of Successful Catalog Firm and also was director of corporate planning for a Fortune 1000 company. 
He has an engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon University, which I need to know how you met the leap over here, and an MBA from the University of Tennessee. Roger, I'm so happy we're doing this. Right. Well, that about wraps the show, I think, Sandy. You've taken up all the time. Uh, you know, one uh, uh, thing that happens when you're old is you end up having a lot of stuff uh, on your bio. Uh, but in any case, uh, th- uh, thanks for the great welcome, Sandy. Glad to be here. Well, I mean, I, we were so lucky to meet the first time we went to HPS. And I think it was either first or second night. We ended up sitting outside having dinner, just four of us. And you told us a little bit about your background. And me, who loves studying the brain and how the brain works and why people do the things they do. I'm like, I just have to have them on my podcast. But before I get into any of that, I always ask my guest, if you had one word in the past 30 days to describe what's been going on, how you feel, what would that word be and why, Roger? I'm going to give you two, Sandy. One is excited because, you know, you mentioned uh, that we're both involved in heroic public speaking and what I've seen in the last few weeks uh, is my keynote, my standard keynote or uh, basic keynote uh, coming together. You know, it, it, initially it was sort of uh, an unformed mass uh, based on other speeches that I've done. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've done a lot of editing, a new creative work and tried to tie loose ends together and make things flow better. And, you know, it's much like a a sculptor might reveal a statue from a big block of granite <laughs> or marble. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I see it starting to take shape. It's not quite there yet. But, uh, and then the other th- uh, word is ambiguous because, you know, there's been so much uncertainty uh, in even the last month where uh, we've seen things close up again after yeah. we thought that we were done with the virus and things were on a pretty even keel to recover. Uh, I've seen speaking gigs go virtual that were supposed to be in person and uh, events thrown into chaos because of those same reasons. So, uh, you know, I think uh, that about sums it up, a combination of excitement and ambiguity. I like those two words and I'm actually feeling the same thing for both reasons and I get it. All right. So before we even get started in this, how did engineering go to neuroscience of marketing? I'm trying to make the crossover there. Well, I'll, I'll try and keep the explanation as short as possible because we could do a whole podcast, or maybe two about that. But even in engineering school, I had an interest in psychology. I minored in psychology. And in particular, I was interested in the psychology of advertising. And, you know, after I graduated, I went into actually working as an engineer for a very, very short time uh, in actual engineering, but I had to put that stuff aside, worked my way up through project management and product management with more marketing emphasis. And uh, it was... I picked up my business degree along the way, but it was really a long time before I was able to bring that interest in advertising back into the mix. Uh, After uh, I bailed out of the corporate life, uh, my corporate life into my startup, which is a direct marketing business, uh, I ended up being very focused on marketing. Mm -hmm. We were a catalog company and that's basically what we did. I mean, that, that was, if you look at all the inputs that went into, we didn't manufacture anything. Uh, We didn't have a sales effort. We had to be marketers. And the exciting thing about that was that at the time, direct marketing, catalog marketing, direct mail, that was the most quantitative kind of marketing that you could do uh, back in those days. Uh, We could do things like square inch analysis, look at uh, how each part of each page in the catalog was contributing. We could do rudimentary A-B testing with different uh, cover images, uh, different uh, types of personalization, 
So uh, that, that got me back into that space. Uh, spent a while there, learned about digital marketing, which is uh, pretty interesting as things transition from being paper into e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Got into IT outsourcing after that business, uh, but even then maintained an interest in the digital marketing and in particular uh, SEO piece, because that was becoming a thing. In the early days of search engines, yeah. if you wanted to sell via e-commerce, which was the new direct marketing, you had to understand SEO. That was such a fascinating space for me because it was still in the early days. You could have very quick success if you knew what you were doing. Yeah. The, uh, along the way, I did a few little side gigs, and one of these was to start uh, College Confidential, which you mentioned. Uh, uh, and that turned out to be uh, uh, actually a, a pretty significant thing for me. It became my full-time gig for a period of years. But uh, at the same time as I was doing that stuff, I saw the confluence of two areas on neuroscience and marketing. Mm. And this, this dovetailed with my initial interest in psychology. You know, imagine being able to use the brain as an explanation or to understand how and why marketing works and maybe to make your marketing work better. I wasn't the only person, but this was back in like 2004, 2005. I grabbed a domain, uh, neurosciencemarketing.com. Uh, keyword marketing was big then, or keyword domains yeah. were, and I started writing about it. And this is just kind of a little hobby thing. Uh, but surprisingly, I found I got traction in that area. People were reading my stuff. I started devoting a little bit more time to that, more time, uh, and found a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the area was emerging as a more important space rather than a kind of a sketchy pseudoscience space where you know some not so reliable companies were uh, hawking things that may or may not have worked really well into something that was involving more sophisticated science, you know, some limited academic work. Academics were still kind of dubious. Uh, and also uh, what I found was there was a greater uh, interest on the part of my readers and followers on the behavioral science aspects. In other words, rather than going out and using the tools of neuroscience to test ads, to test marketing, uh, specifically for, say, a Super Bowl ad or an ad campaign, a print campaign, rather to use our understanding of how the brain works to create better marketing. So because the tools at the time uh, for neuromarketing were really incredibly expensive. If you weren't a Coca-Cola or BMW working on a big project, you couldn't really do any of that stuff. So uh, I tried to find ways that even smaller businesses could uh, use some of the same knowledge and that's what really got traction led to my first book, Brain Fluence. Well, this subject, I mean, we could have a three-part series on because I call it step into our brains. And I've always wondered that, like why they created that certain commercial and why other ones took off, you know, and other ones didn't. And when you were talking about it's the subconscious, that's what they have to understand in order to attract the consumer. Are they really, which is scary, most times doing it, we don't know, and they're manipulating us? Yes. Uh, you know, I hate ah. to say it, but uh, most marketers uh, do exploit, or at least uh, most of it, smart marketers do understand some of these behavioral science tools, and they use them. You know, if you've ever visited a travel booking site like Expedia or Booking.com or any of those sites, you will find all kinds of behavioral science at work there you'll see that there's only two rooms left at this price. Uh, That's called scarcity, uh, which is one of Robert Cialdini's uh, original six, now seven principles. Uh, And they know that that makes that item more desirable and also creates uh, a fear of missing out, loss aversion, something that uh, Nobel winner Daniel Kahneman found had a powerful impact on our brains. You will see also things like 
53 people have booked this room uh, in the last 48 hours, or this hotel in the last 48 hours. And uh, that's social proof. That's showing that other people are interested in this and they're actually taking action, which tends to stimulate you to take action as well. You may see some uh, commentary uh, like, you know, this is a five-star hotel or four and a half-star hotel. Uh, That would be authority, another Chaldini principle where experts are saying uh, this is a high quality place. And, you know, you could go on and on, but uh, many, many sites use those kinds of tools Uh, And the important thing, I think, Sandy, is that, uh, you know, it's great to do these, but they should be done in an ethical fashion, in an honest fashion. Mm. You know, to say that Mm. there's only two rooms left uh, is great if there are only two rooms left. You know, if if those two rooms sell and the next day there's two more rooms at essentially the same price, that's, um, you know, not so honest. But, uh, you know, these these tools, if they're used properly uh, and with transparency, are fine. So... Big thing, and I know this from owning health clubs, pricing, like $499 and could be 95 cents versus 500. And I'd be like, that's ridiculous, but I saw it to be true. And then you see people saying, oh, I told my wife or husband it was only $400 versus 500. Is that true? I mean, I see it everywhere. It's always 499, 599, 699. Yes. So in in short, yes. Um, There's a lot of research on this and there's like no single perfect uh, thing. It depends on the product, the customers and so on. But in general, there's a sort of first digit bias. Uh, So, you know, that 499 versus 500 uh, makes it seem smaller than that $1 difference. Uh, There's also a sense that a price like 499 is a sale price. It's a reduced price uh, as opposed to 500, which sounds like a rounded price. Yeah. Uh, for years and years, uh, Sears had all or most of their prices ending in 97 cents or 97 because their research showed it. And, and Sears was a direct marketer beyond compare. I mean, they had, they were the Amazon of their day in direct marketing. Uh, they had data uh, that showed them that 97 outperformed other things. So, and there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that works, but basically yeah. it makes things appear to be cheaper uh, than they really are. And the one caveat there is if you are selling a higher quality product, a luxury product, an exclusive product, you don't want to use that kind of pricing. Uh, you know, you won't see uh, an ex- expensive watch advertised for, you know, $24,995. You'll see it advertised for $25,000. <laughs> That's true. I didn't even think of that. Okay. So when I had told everyone you were coming on, and I broke it up into segments. And first thing was about brain fluence. They wanted to know, as the entrepreneur or solo entrepreneur, would their book help them for driving traffic to their website, which is the big thing people want to do? Yes. Okay. Now, uh, I got my start in digital marketing by driving traffic to websites. And uh, there are a lot of things that uh, do that. And many of those are technical in nature, okay? There are things like understanding SEO, uh, understanding how to create your site architecture, uh, how to uh, create inbound links, uh, how to do content silos, and you know all, all these things that are uh, have nothing to do with uh, brain science or behavioral science. Mm. Uh, they are uh, things that satisfy Google. However, once you get to that point, uh, you can start thinking about keeping people engaged, keeping people on your website, because these are things that do uh, help you 
drive traffic. Not only do they increase the chance that you're going to convert that visitor into a buyer, which is really important, uh, when people view multiple pages on your website, when people hang around for a while, when they take action on your website, Google is watching this too, and uh, that may improve your traffic somewhat. If, if people hit your website and bounce in three seconds, uh, that's bad for, for Google yeah. traffic. So uh, there, are there are behavioral things you can do, and a lot of it uh, relate, isn't really brain science, it isn't rocket science, it isn't necessarily even brain yeah. science. Uh, it's things like uh, having a tremendous clarity of what your site is about and what the person is supposed to do so that people can immediately see where what you do. I mean, so many sites, I've, I've gone to a site with a name that said, someone said, here, you ought to check out this uh, brand, check it out. And you yeah. get there, what, what business are these people in? Are these consultants or coaches? Or are they selling the product? What, what's going on? You know, uh, that's, that's one thing. Uh, the uh, understanding if you want, if you have created a funnel where you're trying to get visitors uh, and then convert them into a buyer or convert them into a sales lead by getting their email address or their contact information, the next step has to be perfectly clear for one and be attractive in some way. There's got to be motivation. Yeah. And this is where the behavioral science, brain science comes in, creating that motivation. You know, what things can you do uh, that are going to either consciously or non-consciously uh, attract people to that next step. And those are the kinds of cues that you'll find in Brainfluence. Uh, you'll find uh, in other uh, resources like that yeah. uh, that you know teach you what people's brains are looking for. And they are not typically features and benefits, okay? They're not why your product is better than the competition. That information may be important to some people. You know, the fact that uh, your product has 27% more power than the competing brand uh, and there's going to be a few buyers out there say, wow, that's exactly why I need to buy this product. Uh, but most of them don't care. Uh, you know, they want to know, they want emotional reassurance about your product. Uh, they want to understand uh, your company, your ethos. Uh, they want to know whether other people uh, also trust your company. Uh, they want to know if there are experts that recommend your company and so on. And all of these things are maybe somewhat at the conscious level, but a, yeah. a lot of them are somewhat non-conscious. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I was thinking about that because I just redid my website. And at first, one of the marketing people said, no, you have to you know, talk about basically what you were saying about the benefits and the features. And I'm always about, well, how am I making them feel? And so I reached out to my people and I said, what attracted you to me? And they said, your testimonials. Right. And uh, while we're on that topic, Sandy, I totally believe that because people, uh, you know, they are constantly looking for that social proof. What do other people say? You know, when was the last time you bought a product on Amazon without checking the reviews? You know, you always like to see what people are saying about it. Yeah. And, you know, even when you're buying a, a service or something uh, that's a one-off, you still want that. But here, here's a little hack that uh, you can turn your testimonials into authorities. Uh, where, I mean, it's great if you have authority testimonials. Uh, in other words, if um, you had uh, Seth Godin say that you did a great job for him, Sandy, you know, one of the leading voices in marketing. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that uh, yeah, you'd put that on your homepage and his picture would be three times the size of yours, maybe. But, uh, you know, most of us don't have that. Uh, and what one uh, company I saw did that I thought was rather smart and it was not unethical, uh, they took that testimonial and they used it to create a variety of cues. Uh, to make it much more powerful. Uh, first of all, they included the, the person's title uh, because they were selling to, uh, in that case, uh, designers. 
mm -hmm. uh, like digital designers, web designers, app designers, and such. Uh, so this person wasn't just listed as by name, but listed as lead designer uh, for somebody. Uh, so that immediately tells me, oh, this is a person like me. Uh, they had a very subtle cue where his photo had uh, the back of his MacBook computer with the Apple logo partially visible. So you saw, oh, this person is a Mac user, which of course most design people are. So another cue to this is a person like me. Uh, this is invoking Chaudini's principle of liking, which is not necessarily so much about, uh, you know, I like you because you're a nice person, but I like you because you are like me. Uh, and so it, it works at that level. And then uh, they put the company that the person worked for with permission, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, in this case, uh, some of the, the brands, I forget what that person's brand was, but they had some big uh, brands like uh, Evernote or Microsoft or, you know, people like that. Uh, and they put those brands, uh, put the brand logo there uh, in a rather large size. So if you immediately glanced at it, uh, you know, you might say, oh, well, this is uh, an endorsement from Evernote or Microsoft. Uh, and so they took what could have been just a humble testimonial and layered it with all these other cues to invoke uh, Chaldini's different principles. Oh my goodness. I Roger, I have to bring you back on just about this topic because not only me, but I got so many questions for you about this, but we got to move on because you've done a lot of other things, <laughs> but I can't tell you, I have pages here. Ask them this, ask them that. So I have a feeling there's a lot of people out there that are redesigning their websites now to fit the new atmosphere, you know, a lot of need, but I want to move on to friction because this is a big one for me. And, you know, I've owned health clubs my whole life and I just sold them in 2019. And I love that you say it's not just that person in the front lines, it's freaking everyone. Now you called it friction. I wanted my customer to come in and just feel pure joy and the whole process be ease and flow. So I think it's the same thing. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, ease, ease and flow is a, uh, a great thing to have if you are selling any kind of product or service. But uh, as you've no doubt experienced, uh, a lot of businesses are more like going to the motor vehicle bureau uh, than doing business with Amazon where you get it done with a single click of your mouse or tap with your finger. And you know that uh, my work on brain fluence and behavioral science is really what led me to friction. I created a little framework myself. Uh, I called initially the persuasion slide. I've renamed it the action slide, uh, which we're not going to get into uh, here. That'd be a little bit off topic. But one of the four elements in that, it's based on the children's playground slide, is friction. And that's what stops the kid from either, uh, either it slows them down on their path to the bottom or it stops them completely partway down because the slide isn't slippery enough. They get stuck. And you know this is a great metaphor for people's businesses, whether they're an e-commerce business. If you look at the ab abandoned shopping cart rate for just about every e-commerce business, it's enormous. Uh, I haven't seen uh, numbers lately, but I know it's been as high as uh, 75%. And it, I'm sure it goes by individual businesses. Uh, Amazon has a very low abandoned cart basis because most people don't put the product in their cart. They click that buy now button and just do it, oh, which is pretty smart okay. on Amazon's part. You know, rather than dumping something in a cart and saying, okay, uh, you know, now you can check out, they do it automatically and avoid that whole reconsideration process. That, well, is, oh, wow, there's going to be this. And yeah, it's in too much money. Maybe I'll think about this. You know, it's all, oh, okay, it's on the way. Yeah. But uh, regardless, you know, I, I realized that 
uh, of the different elements, most the two of which were motivational in nature, that the science said that friction was more important than trying to increase customers' motivation. And they come to you with some motivation. You can't really change that. You can't fix that. All you can do is try and appeal to it. Uh, but you can change your motiv- motivation you provide. You know, if you tell people, hey, half off today, you've increased their motivation, but you've given away half your revenue and probably all of your profit. So, uh, you know, it's uh, increasing motivation can be very expensive. So I decided to focus on friction and really did a deep dive into it. And it I, I worked on the book for years uh, uh, because I, it kept expanding into other areas. I realized that mm. it affected not just uh, that initial sort of uh, online shopping but are really all aspects of customer experience in all kinds of businesses. Uh, and then uh, it affects employee experience just as much and they're not unrelated. You know, uh, if your employees uh, have an unnecessarily effortful process, and if you talk to people uh, who work for large companies, you will find that many times they feel like they are wasting a lot of their time. They're following procedures that don't necessarily make sense, but that's how we do it here, it's, it's the rule. Or just you know, having to go through layers of permission. You know, I've I've got to get uh, I've got to take a trip, but oh, my flight's got to be approved by a manager or you know, to a two level up manager or something. Uh, my expense report has to go through multiple approval processes, and you know, all these things you know, they waste time, they waste effort, uh, and I, I think uh, one uh, additional reading suggestion that uh, there's a book, uh, No Rules Rules, uh, Reed Hastings. Uh, the CEO of Netflix, uh, and it's all about how eliminating rules in Netflix um, made it a far better company. And I don't think that we can all necessarily follow that exact Netflix model. But you know, when we take out these barriers to our employees getting their work done, you know, instead of beating on people to try and make them more productive and saying, "Well, hey, you know, how can we make you work harder? How can we uh, motivate you more?" Just remove the barriers there and make it easier for them. That's going to accomplish two things, Sandy. First of all, uh, it'll free up wasted time and they will be able to get more done uh, without you having to press them to be more productive. Uh, And secondly, uh, often these rules, these processes are based on mistrust. At one point, some manager didn't trust an employee or the employees to do something either correctly or competently or honestly. So they said, okay, we need a process in place for this. We need to specify exactly how it's going to be done. Uh, then we have to have an approval process in place even. Uh, you know, And nobody ever looked at what are the costs of these steps? Uh, is it really necessary? What if somebody screws up once in a while? Is How big of a problem is that? You know, yeah. Certain things, if it's going to sink the company, okay, you want processes in place. You know, if it's going to cost the company five bucks once in a while, you don't need processes to fix that. You know, you just forget about it. It happens right off. And when you eliminate these things, you are showing people that you trust them. You trust them to be competent. You trust them to be honest. And trust is a key differentiator between high-performing companies and low-performing companies. And uh, Sandy, that's not me saying that. Uh, Paul no, Zach no, it's the, I survived. Yeah, many many years. I was in the healthcare industry for over thirty some years, and I had. Very little turnover for the fitness industry. I mean, because usually they, you know, they come and they come and they come and they go. And it's because I listened to what they had to say and I did value them and I did trust them. Now, did they make more mistakes? 
I don't know. They, they did make mistakes. And now and again, my business manager would be like, see, you don't have enough rules in place. But I was more of the mindset, okay, they're going to make mistakes, but look on our retention, look how much they love the company. And when they would make a mistake and they get, they would get so upset. And I look at them and go, eh, you won't do that again. And that was it. And I thought, ah, oh, I treated them how I wanted to be treated. Well, Sandy, you could be a case study uh, in my book because I've actually have uh, a couple of examples uh, like that uh, uh, in there where uh, one, one from Jack Welch, the CEO of the last century, uh, implemented policies that echoed uh, what you're talking about uh, and a couple of others. Uh, and it's the uh, reason this works uh, is because trust uh, is like a lubricant within companies. It makes things go more smoothly. Paul Zak is the researcher who discovered that oxyto oxytocin is the hormone of human trust. Uh, and people have called him a vampire economist uh, because the way you determine people's oxytocin levels is by taking a blood sample. And uh, they went into companies, high-performing and low-performing, and they did surveys asking people about a variety of things, including uh, trust levels. Do you trust the company? Uh, do they trust you? Do you trust your coworkers, your boss? Do they trust you? And then they did something pretty weird. They took blood samples to go along with all these surveys. And when they analyzed the data uh, back in their lab, what they found was amazing. High-performing companies were high-trust companies, uh, not only determined yes. by what people said on their form, on their surveys, but by the oxytocin levels in their bloodstream. So when you told your people, your new people, that I trust you to do this, you know, if, if you screw up something, just, you know, don't worry about it, just fix it and uh, it'll be fine. Uh, you increased their oxytocin level. You increased their trust in you because trust is reciproc reciprocal. If I yeah. trust you, Sandy, you're more likely to trust me and vice versa. You know, if I show that I don't trust you, you're going to think, yeah, I don't know if I can trust Roger. So, you know, it, it is really a very powerful tool uh, that so few businesses don't use. Hey, you know, um, I, I went to multiple years of business school. Uh, they did not teach you to eliminate processes and increase trust. Uh, they told you how to set up the proper kinds of process to make sure stuff got done the same way every time. Yeah. Uh, but that's not always the necessary or the right way. Yeah, yeah. So isn't this your big idea? Isn't this what you're going for in your new keynote about Yes. Customer service and employees. and Yes. Uh, you know, I, I backed into this from the customer experience standpoint, uh, and I really used Amazon as uh, my initial case study uh, because they have grown so fast and displaced so many existing players, including uh, they, they went from nothing to knocking off Barnes & Noble in books, uh, which Barnes & Noble, you know, back then, uh, Barnes & Noble had every advantage you can imagine, uh, massive market knowledge. Uh, industry distributed around the uh, inventory distributed around the country, massive inventory, name recognition, uh, and in a few years Amazon had knocked them off, uh, and they proceeded to do that in just about every other industry. And so, but as I delved in more and more, uh, what I saw was uh, the companies that were producing great customer experience often were doing it by great employee experience. Uh, Amazon is kind of an exception to that rule. Uh, they have done it by systems. You know, I have almost, I, in years, I haven't interacted with a human at Amazon. You know, I see the delivery driver, who's, I think, a different person every time, get out of the truck, <laughs> drop something off my porch, and walk away. Uh, I don't think I have ever spoken with one of them. I've waved out the door a couple of times if I happen to be standing right there. Uh, but I haven't, I've never had to call for customer service. It's, you know, all systematized. 
Yeah. And they've been able to keep it together that way so far. But, you know, now Amazon is running into issues with uh, some places, uh, some uh, locations wanting to unionize, uh, other places complaining about uh, really terrible working conditions. This is going to affect them in the long run if they don't fix it. Now, Jeff Bezos has committed to fixing it, so I hope he does. But uh, I think there are a lot more stories about companies that have succeeded by creating a great employee experience uh, as the basis for a great customer experience. And uh, the last time I had Tom Peters, the management guru on my podcast, uh, he emphasized, I think quoting John DeJulius, uh, that your customers can never be happier than your employees. And to me, that is such a simple, powerful statement. Mm. I don't know if, say, Jeff Bezos would have believed that 10 years ago. I don't know if he believes it right now. Uh, but I do think that a lot of smart companies do believe that and they act on it. Uh, they look at their employee experience first, understanding that's a necessary ingredient of getting to that great customer experience. Roger, I'm so glad you're doing this. Are you having fun with this keynote? Yeah, well, I am because, you know, people say, I, I know that initially when I was working on Friction, uh, I was doing a uh, gig at a, kind of an elite little retreat for uh, sort of high-end uh, entrepreneurs. And they said, oh, we need you to tape a little promo segment for us. Just you know, one good idea. And this was before I had finished my Friction book that I was working on. I said, okay, uh, my, this is what my thing is all about, but uh, how about if we do Friction? And I said, oh, no, no, everybody knows about Friction. Got to do something else. So I said, okay. So I did something else for my promo, okay. uh, but I realized that there's this misconception that, oh, we know about that. You know, we fixed that. It's done. You know, every, everybody knows about that. In Silicon Valley, it's a buzzword, you know, frictionless this, frictionless that. And you don't realize until you try and do stuff and interact with companies, you know, how much friction there actually is out there. There are a few companies that actually deliver on that promise. Amazon is one. Zoom, which we're using right now, is another yeah. one. Uh, you know, Sandy, they, uh, we could think of Zoom as a pandemic baby. Uh, about probably, you know, two, three years ago, if we were going to do this, we would have said, let's get on a WebEx or let's get on Skype and do this. Yeah, Skype. Uh, you know, yeah. suddenly when the pandemic hit, let's jump on a Zoom call. Didn't matter what we were using, it was a Zoom call. You know, everybody's wearing their Zoom shirt. Uh, you know, it was Zoom was everything. And we think of them as something, a product of the pandemic. But uh, as early as 2016, they were blowing past their other com competitors. Uh, and, you know, uh, then, of course, when the pandemic took off, they became the default. Uh, they were so easy to get going. Even IT departments who loved Cisco, they loved Microsoft, said, screw this, we can't support 300 uh, amateur users trying to get on with these products. We need something simple. So they went to Zoom. Uh, and what uh, Zoom does, I think, right, is their, their company mission statement is make communications frictionless. How simple, how clear is that? Gives every person in the company, uh, not just their developers, their legal team, their compliance people, everybody, perfect clarity as to what you should be doing. Is what you are wanting to change going to make things more frictionless or less so? And uh, you know, to me, that that is where every company should uh, try and try to be. Yes, and you know what? I'm thinking about this because I had the same thing happen to me. I was really heavy into corporate well-being, and people were saying, "Well, every company knows." that they will be more productive if they work out, if we do stuff for mental health. Yes, they know it, Roger. But when I really dive deep, they weren't doing it. They would send out a newsletter, an email. Oh, you should be doing this. But they weren't being, same thing, proactive. 
And yet everybody goes, yeah, we know well-being, well-being. But they were just putting a Band-Aid on it. You know, they weren't really getting and really caring about their clients' well-being and their customers' well-being and their employees' well-being, which all matters. And it sounds like to me, it's the same thing that you found out. Well, people have a lot of excuses, Sandy. You know, uh, back when travel was a thing, it's barely coming back now. But uh, I was always uh, uh, the uh, you know highest one uh, K elite level on United, uh, the highest published level, and that was you know great experience for me. Loved the experience, but despite that, just using their website was so filled with friction. Like every month or so, they suddenly say, "We don't recognize your device," uh, and they start asking me questions about. Uh, my best friend's uh, birthday or what kind of uh, movies I watch. And it's crazy things, you know, it's like, who knows? How did I answer these questions? Uh, and this happened every month or so. Yeah. No other, that never happens to me at Amazon. I'd have to probably nuke my hard drive to get logged out of Amazon. But somehow with United, every few weeks, it's like, whoa, we don't recognize you. Let's prove that you're really Roger. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's insanity. Uh, and, you know, my the fact that I was one of their best, most loyal customers had no effect on that. And I'm sure that they had a ready-made excuse. Their security person said, look, this is the best practice. If we don't do this, uh, these are the horrible things that could happen to the company. Uh, and we could lose a lot of money. Nobody ever looked at how likely is it that these things are going to happen? Is there another way of addressing mm-hmm. these that won't inconvenience uh, 99% of the customers, particularly your best customers? And I mean, I could uh, do about uh, you know 10 of those examples just from United alone. Uh, but one thing I did find uh, one ray of hope. The last time I was on their site, after I did something, I made a reservation or checked in for flight, a pop-up came along. I'm not a big fan of pop-ups. But this one was uh, a very simple thing. How easy did you find your experience? Uh, and it was like from one to five, uh, from easy mm-hmm. to difficult. And you know, to me, that was brilliant. Uh, I've, I've been mocking them for probably I don't know, six years or more uh, in my <laughs> keynotes, maybe, maybe finally there was you know, somebody in United uh, who had some influence that saw, saw one of mine. They never, they never told me they had, but uh, maybe they said, well, let's, let's ask our customers, like Roger tells you to, uh, let's ask them about how effortful their experience is. So uh, there, there's hope there and maybe in other places as well, Sandy. Yeah, well, I agree. I was looking at this statement, 96% of customers are disloyal if they high high effort experience. And so when I saw that, I started thinking about who I like doing business with. And I never thought about it, Roger, until I was, you know, reviewing all your stuff. And for me, it's the ones that I have the best experience with, even from, you know, purchasing clothing online. I can't wait to call like Orvis for customer service. Like I want to order this because it's effortless. It's amazing. And then I don't know what I could do about it, but I won't mention the election company, I've, I've never, ever had to deal with any of this. I've always had great customer service, but they double billed me. And for me, to, I cannot even tell you how many times they switched me over, switched me over, switched me over, switched me over that person eight different times. And guess what? They still never refunded the money. It was it's, uh, it's insane. And, you know, uh, utility companies are typically monopolies uh, and they, along with internet service providers, uh, cable providers, satellite uh, TV and radio providers, uh, they are all semi-monopolies. And uh, that is why they all rank extremely low uh, in customer experience scores. Ah. Uh, they're, they're among the lowest industries uh, because you know they don't, they don't have to treat you well. They don't have somebody that you can switch to in 10 seconds. You know, in e-commerce, 
if you can find uh, uh, you know, that pair of brand name jeans uh, on one website, you can go to another website and find it in 10 seconds, probably for the same price. Uh, and you know, I end up shopping a lot at Amazon simply because they're easier. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a question that their price is absolutely the cheapest or anything else. It's, I know that, hey, there, I find it. Uh, I make sure that the reviews look okay. So I've got some kind of uh, uh, belief that maybe this isn't going to end up being a return. And I click buy now and hey, it's there on my doorstep yeah. 24 hours, 48 hours later. <laughs> uh, and, you know, why? Uh, and I take the point that many people say, well, gee, you should be supporting other businesses because Amazon is taking over the planet. Uh, but, you know, I'm busy. You know, I don't have time to uh, set up uh, accounts at other places and deal sure. with the credit card things and email verifications and two-factor authentication and all these other things. You know, I, I wanted two clicks and uh, to have it be there. Yeah. Roger, I have to bring you back on. I didn't even get to half the questions from my audience. And you are just a source of knowledge. I loved every minute. But we have to go to rapid fire because we got to get out of here. Will you come back on? Yes, I will be happy to, Sandy, anytime. Yeah, I, because I'm questions. sitting there Why looking at a list of questions. I'm there. They're going to kick my butt, but there's just no way we can get through it all. So what's your favorite color? Blue. Favorite food? I'm wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> favorite food? Have to say pizza. All I mean, right. I'm going for the uh, easily accessible. I'm going to leave off, you know, uh, fancy lobster dishes and beef wellington yeah, and such. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's your go-to. What do you like doing in your spare time when you're not working? Uh, I am an inveterate tinkerer with stuff. Uh, in recent times, I've been working on my home studio and uh, camera gear and lighting gear and such for uh, virtual keynotes and things. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that ends up being both fun and productive. I, I tend to enjoy, enjoy doing things that overlap a little bit with business, but don't seem like business. They seem like fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I did click on your YouTube videos and your podcast. I was like, whoa, they're awesome. I got to get Roger to help me. I mean, the lighting, the sound, perfect, 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 perfect. Well, hopefully you saw an evolution from, uh, you know, my beginning days to uh, what I've been doing lately. Oh, I did. I did. Okay. So if you had off for the day, what would you do from morning to night? How would you spend your free time? Would it still be tinkering? If you could do anything, go well, anywhere, what would you do? I would, be, uh, I would probably spend a good good chunk of it tinkering. I would spend uh, quite a bit of time reading. I find that uh, I don't have as much time as I'd like to actually sit down and read physical paper books. Uh, the physical paper books I do read are typically uh, business books that I'm reading uh, very rapidly so I can record a podcast uh, for my podcast. And you know, it's, I don't, I enjoy doing that. I get good ideas from these books, uh, but it's not really leisure reading. So I would definitely do some of that, uh, preferably uh, in my yard in good weather, where I can feel kind of like uh, I'm out communing with nature at the same time I'm reading. Yeah. Okay. If you could be an animal, what would you be and why? Any animal? Oh, I think I'd probably be a dog just because, uh, you know, humans and dogs get along so, so well together and why not? Yeah, and they're so loyal and friendly and all that. Okay, when I say the word universe, what does that word mean to you? Uh, I guess, you know, being, being a technical guy, I'm very literal. I mean, it means uh, the uh, thing that we all live in, it's a bunch of galaxies. Uh, uh, and is there something beyond the edge of our known universe? More universes? Who knows? <laughs> I would expect that answer from you. 
All right, Roger. Well, it's been freaking awesome. I know you're going to knock it out of the park with your keynote. I'm so happy you're bringing this to the world. I feel like you're bringing science to what I believed my entire life, how you should run a business. So thank you so much. But before we go, how can they find everything about you? Where should they look? Uh, The best starting point is rogerdooley.com. You can find links to my contact, my videos, my socials there. I'm probably most active on Twitter where I am at Roger Dooley. In fact, I'm pretty much Roger Dooley on all social media. Roger, thank you so much for being on. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a blast. I'm going to see you soon. Right. Well, thanks for the great questions, Sandy. Look forward to doing this again soon. Hopefully. Hopefully we will do this again real soon. My let's keep it real people. Come on. He was awesome. Like I said, I promise I'll get your questions another time. We'll bring Roger back. Also, we would both appreciate you rating it, liking it and passing it on. You know, it's going to inspire so many people. And we're truly grateful for that. Until next time, you know what I'm going to say. Toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.